Hello and welcome to The Art of Longevity. I'm your host, Keith Jockman. Brett Anderson of Suede once said that all successful artists have navigated four career stages. The struggle, the stratospheric rise to the top, the crash to the bottom, and the renaissance. On The Art of Longevity, we talk to artists who spent decades in the music industry and discover what the journey has been like for them and how have they experienced each of Brett's four stages. Along the way, there are some great stories of the ups and downs and the roundabouts of a career in music, insights for fans and aspiring musicians. This is The Art of Longevity. This is episode four of season two, in which I talk to Steve Berlin of Mexican-American rock legends, Los Lobos. Welcome to The Art of Longevity. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you doing? Good, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Whereabouts in the world are you? Are you at home in Portland? Uh, I mean, yeah, I live actually in southwest Washington, so I'm relatively near Portland, but not in it. How's your day today? It's a beautiful part of the world, usually. I know it can get a little bit wet. I leave tomorrow for uh, about two and a half weeks, so um, today's going to be taking care of everything I need to do before I leave. So I'm starting a record uh, tomorrow, and then I'm, we have some Lobo stuff. So I'm, my next two weeks will be jumping back and forth from Lobo gigs to uh, recording in Pittsburgh. Well, look, let's get started on on Lobo. So I, I think the place to start right now is is Native Sons, and you know you made this new record, which is a covers album, but kind of seminal songs from and, and connected to LA, uh, and the reception's been great, hasn't it? It has been. You know, covers records are kind of low-hanging fruit. You know, I wasn't pretending anything <laughs> anything other than that. Um, but at the same time, you know, we put some thought and care into it. And I think that was one of the rationales for making it about something, in this case about Los Angeles, was that it didn't feel like, you know, we're just tossing it off and not putting the requisite amount of attention into it. So, yeah, we you know came up with this idea about making it about L.A. and basically sort of thanking effectively the city and the artists uh, that made us us. It, it, simple idea, but uh, in the actual execution, it was uh, there were a lot of layers to it, and then there were a lot of you know really interesting layers in the recording and making of. Just because almost every song had like a, a secret key that we had to find and and use to unlock the the mysterious thing that made the song the song. That's interesting. So, how do you go about finding the secret key? to a song to do a great cover. And well, I mean, every song had a sort of different thing, like uh, the Beach Boys one, for instance, uh, we did Sail on Sailor. Which is great. I love that version. Thank you. Yeah, our bass player is a huge Beach I mean, we're all Beach Boys fans, but, you know, he's a, like a serious Beach Boys fan. And uh, I just sort of felt like, okay, this is one we can kind of get our heads around. But, you know, there was a lot of uh, hesitation. Like that one, we tracked it, and it kind of sat there for months while we try to figure out what to do with it. You know, sometimes when you make records, things like just stick. And then you have days that where nothing sticks, where every idea seems forced or fake or inappropriate, or every sound feels like it's just stuck on and doesn't, doesn't connect. So we had a few of those things. Like it just didn't feel like we had the thing that was making the song the song. And then we hired this guy, his name is Phil Parlapiano, who I had worked with many decades ago on a number of records and came out. Chuck Prophet, I think was the last thing that he and I worked on back in the nineties. So he showed up and, you know, I sort of said to him, like, cut the song and I, you know, I don't know what or why, but we just can't get anything to fit. And he goes, well, let me hear it. And he goes, well, you're, you're playing the chord versions, the chords, you know, we had the right chords, but the Beach Boys magic was the way the chords were inverted in some cases extended like the like brian because he was such a jazz knucklehead like most chords especially rock and roll the bass is on the bottom the bass note you know the tonic is on the bottom and the chord is on the top and brian very often would put an odd note on the bass so the chord has like a totally different color that was the mysterious key that we had been missing was we had the chord inversion <laughs> especially like the bass notes wrong and then so once he straightened us out it's like oh yeah there it is so um, that was really interesting. That was a right. good, that was a, a good uh, theory lesson that uh, 
I will now use all over the place because it's really cool. Yeah, it, it's interesting that, to think of every song a bit like a puzzle, you know, and just trying to get to the heart of it. And I, I read somewhere that, you know, you, you wanted to cover these songs in a way that was fairly close to the original rather than try and repurpose them as, you know, in a Los Lobos way. That's, that, that was interesting to me as well. What was the decision behind that? Well, you know, we picked those songs because we loved them to do a record like this. And also because it was initially coming from a place of effectively gratitude, you know, we didn't feel like the mission was to turn them upside down or inside out. You know, we, we kind of wanted to play them with uh, reverence, but also, you know, I don't think anything's more boring than a band playing a song note for note. Like, why bother? Like, why wouldn't I want to go listen to the, you know, the Beach Boys? I mean, unless we put something of our own take on it. So, it, you know, there was like a, a measure, like there was like some cases, I would say there's a lot of us. In some cases, there's a lot of the song. And, you know, we just kind of did like the, the only one that we actually set out to try and mimic, if you will, would be a, a Bluebird because that that's such a cool sounding record. And like the Stephen Stills, uh, hyper compressed acoustic guitar sound is almost, you know, like it's not a sound that occurs anywhere else other than records that he's on. So we, we were like kind of like fascinated by like, how do you do that? Like, how do you get that sound? And basically it's just like, you know, like three or four compressors on a couple of different mics. And, <laughs> you know, you just keep turning them up, you know, turning, turning them up until it sounds like it's about to blow up and then you're there. So uh, that was the only one where we were like, okay, let's see how, you know what we could do but even with that one we you know we made sure there's there's always a layer of us so in this case it was uh you know where there's a couple percussion layers and some other stuff that we did that sort of i'll use this word but it you know latinize it i guess okay it's not it's a terrible word but you know that was kind of the idea like how do we make it sound like him but you know it has a little bit of our our seasoning in it we have reverence for these songs but we wanted to do them our way so like the war song blaster song we we did those more or less from memory so like i to my horror i realized that i got the horn part wrong after we'd already recorded it and i'd done like 19 layers and well, well on which track did you get the uh the horn part wrong oh on uh on the world is a ghetto it's not, it's not quite right it's close well it's my favorite i i have to say for i mean at the moment it's my favorite by the way the album's great and as a covers album, covers generally just don't work to my mind. I think it's very hard to get a cover right. So to get a whole album of covers right is is great. But that one really stood out because um, I hadn't heard it before. I think most people might not have heard it before. Oh, really? Yeah, it was kind of a big thing in California. Anyway, I remember hearing it a lot. Okay, you know, back in the day, because you know we've been around for so fucking long. So war is really interesting. So the band now, sadly, a lot of the players have passed. But some years ago, they split in two. And Lonnie, the, who is basically the leader from the early days, has his version. And then Lee and the, the harmonica player and a few other people have their version. And we're friends with both. Like our, our road manager and, our, and Conrad, our bass player's son, went to work for Lonnie many, many years ago. We, we, we stole our road manager from war, actually. Uh, and, uh, so we're sort of like the Switzerland of, uh, of war, <laughs> but... <laughs> But we, you know, that they were huge. You know, they were really influential. There was like, you know, they weren't exactly from East LA. They're like, for instance, like the Midnighters, who we also covered. Yeah, uh, they were actually guys in the neighborhood when the when the guys in Lobos were growing up. But War became more or less the that the house band of East LA. They be, you know, they they were from actually South Central. But the what they did and how they did it and you know how the songs were. I mean, it was just they sort of were the anthem of early seventies East LA. So. Yeah, it was important to us that we cover them. I think, you know, the guys who we felt an obligation to, like, pleasant obligation to put on this record were um, the Blasters, certainly uh, War, uh, Lala Guerrero, the, that was the, the Chuco Suaves song, yep. and uh, and the Midnighters were, like, the four seriously influential, like, without them, you know, not sure what, what we would be. Right. Especially, the, you know, the Blasters, you know, even though I was in the band, they were so... You know, they were so in- inspirational. They had everything to do with the world becoming aware of Los Lobos. Right. You know, they were, you know, they were really kind of an obscure East L.A. band. I mean, obviously with incredibly talented, but no one outside of East L.A. had any idea who they were until the Blasters heard them. And then everybody knew who we were. 
It's a really nice idea, I have to say. What took you so long? Because uh, <laughs> you, I mean, you're kind of ambassadors of of LA in so many ways, and yeah, you know, it was just time, I guess. I don't know. I mean, we seem to have a collectively a, a sixth sense when to do stuff. You know, when it's time to do something, somehow or another, the the muses whisper in somebody's ear. You know, putting out the the folkloric record right after La Bamba. You know, seemed like an incredibly stupid idea. On <laughs> I'm sure somebody asked, "Can you do a La Bamba too?" Well, we're gonna, we might just come back to that briefly. I, I certainly wouldn't dwell on it. But on Native Sons, the other thing I read, to my disturbance a little bit, was in a LA Times interview that you th- you were kind of considering throwing in the towel before it all. I, I don't know whether that was a throwaway comment or that was a surprise to me too. I, I think that was somewhat blown out of context i have to say uh, okay you know i would say that you know the way the question was asked and the way it was answered were two different things but i think you know like in the early part of the lockdown when everything was basically terror i mean who wasn't thinking about there not being a future like you know i mean it just seemed like it was so dark in those early days and certainly as a band who makes you know 95 percent of their living on the road like how do we do this without that so yeah, it was. Uh, I I had a feeling when he said that I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to answer that question for the next five years. Every fucking day. <laughs> so, sorry, literally, that was that was the first thing that went in my head. I was like, I'm gonna have to talk about this every interview. I had to mention it because this this is the you know the the art of longevity is about how you get through through those moments. Right. There was never a band talk like, hey, are we hanging this up? You know, we were just like, no, that's not how we do anything. We we go, you know, we go the other way 99 percent of the time, but. I think it was more about that. Like, how did you deal with that moment? And I know I did. I was like, okay, well, I guess that's it for this career. You know, like maybe I could learn horseshoeing or something. <laughs> I mean, how does a Jewish sax player end up kind of falling in with, you know, four Chicanos and forming a Latin rock band? Because you, you've been in the band for a long time. Go back, take, take me back to 1984. Well, I was in the right place at the right time. Late 70s, early 80s, Los Angeles. I was everywhere. I was in 19 different bands on any given night of the week. You could probably see me in two or three different places. So I was like the sax guy in those early days because the scene for many, you know, a couple of years for the first four or five years, it was, it was so cool, but it was so small. Like everybody knew everybody and everybody wanted to have a sax player. So I was in all these different bands. So I was, you know, I was around a lot. And then I was in the Flesh Eaters with uh, the guys in X and the Blasters. So that, you know, effectively made me a, a made man because X and the Blasters and, uh, oh, who else? The Plugs, Black Flag. I mean, they were like the, the pinnacle of that scene. Like, those were the cool kids. And I was, from a long time, I was on the periphery of the cool kids. Uh, and then I was asked to be in the Blasters, which, you know, officially made me one of the cool kids. Um, before I was in the Blasters, it was um, I was in a band called the Rhythm Pigs, Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs, and I also produced their first album. So that band was kind of everybody, including like John Doe and Billy Zoom, had played in the Rhythm Pigs at one time. I mean, it was like a traveling circus, more or less, and the members would change relatively frequently. And it was just like this open party, more or less. Jimmy was a really hard drinking, hard partying rogue but like a total character like everybody loved him tom waits was a friend you know he's one of those kind of guys who you know he just lived on the ragged edge but in a really charming way he's the top jimmy from the van halen track yes that guy yes so like for instance like they wrote a song about him because everybody loved him jimmy had a gig every monday night at this place called the the cafe de grand which was one of the most disgusting (laughs) clubs you could possibly imagine there was it was the basement of a terrible chinese restaurant Somebody talked the owner into opening a club downstairs. So you walk in and the, the car, you know, had like this terrible industrial carpet that was always wet and smelly. And that was the, that was the Cathay de Grand. And I, I don't think they ever, you know, like modern California, they would have shut it down in a heartbeat. I'm sure it was like a, like a biohazard off the chart, but that was our clubhouse every Monday night. And, you know, it became a scene. So every Monday night, it was like anybody, everybody would be at the Cathay de Grand and, the Lobos guys would come in and hang out and see us play. Because the band was actually really good. Even um, Jimmy was a really great singer. Anyway, so the Lobos 
come and open for the Blasters at the Whiskey A Go Go. It's like the the high water mark for the Blasters at that moment. Like we had been playing clubs all around town, but you know, finally to play the Whiskey A Go Go was kind of like you're definitely up a ladder of evolution once you hit the you know you headline the whiskey. We had like we had four nights there, five nights or something nutty like that. So it was a big deal. So Lobos open, and like I said, everybody knew everybody in the scene. And then here's these four guys that no one knew, no one had ever seen before, no one had ever heard before. And because they had been together for seven years at that point, like the band that had been together the longest at that point was two years, if that. And here are these guys that have effectively been playing literally every, almost every week for seven years. And they just had that thing. They had that cohesion and density that comes from playing together for, for, you know, a long, long, long time every night. So just literally blew everybody away. The next day, my phone was ringing off the hook. Did you see Los Lobos? Like, it was like every conversation started with Los Lobos. So that night, you know, I just said, hey, that was amazing. You know, we just backstage buddies. And they said, you know, these songs have sax parts. If you ever have any time, you want to come sit in and learn them, that'd be great. And my exposure to Latin music at that point in my life was literally zero. I was like, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia. I moved to LA. You know, Latin music was not in my listening or study or nothing i mean it was zero and especially the subcategory of stuff that they played which was at that time and still um norteño music which is the music of um, the border between texas and mexico yeah because they'd been playing very traditional acoustic mexican music hadn't they for like that six or seven year period right so they had a couple originals and then but they were also playing these norteño songs which were the ones that had the sax parts so okay that was my way into their world and because um on me you know i'm always you know i want to learn from everything so i was like yeah hell yeah i'm, I'm in let's do it so i showed up at a rehearsal and it's funny that the so the band used to rehearse at their friends a guy named gary Ibanez, who drove a delivery truck for years and he would open his garage and they would rehearse and or just go and get drunk there. And he had a, a reel-to-reel recorder. He was kind of an amateur recordist. And I ran into him like recently, like, like within the last couple of months. And he said, you know, I have the, the tape was running the day that you showed up. So I have a recording of you walking into the room and meeting everybody and learning these songs. So I said, you know, do you have a way of digitizing? And he said he would. So I'm hoping to hear that. It, that's going to be kind of a goal to just imagine like literally hearing me walk into the room that first day wow and learning these songs so anyway um, <laughs> that's where it started and then you know i okay i fell in love with all of it you know i fell in love with the guys and the band and learning all about all this music and learning this tradition and you know i was in the blasters so i would do crazy stuff like you know we were we had a gig on the east coast and i would take a red eye to, to come back to la and play a a quinceañera, which is like a 15th birthday for a Mexican girl at two in the afternoon, just because I wanted to be there so bad and wanted to be part of it. So, you know, that was kind of my life for those couple of years. And then, you know, I had always had this idea of, you know, wanting to produce records and they let me produce a couple of things, you know, before the first record, there was a, a soundtrack to a, a movie called Eating Raul. And then there was another one. It was like a rockabilly compilation. And then, uh, then they got signed to Slash all of us were pushing the owner of slash because I knew him because he, the blasters were on slash and we were literally browbeating this guy. His name was Bob Biggs. Sadly passed away uh, earlier this year. Uh, you know, you got to sign Los Lobos. You got to sign Los Lobos. And like, we basically blackmailed him into signing Los Lobos. We, I remember somebody told him that they would never invite him to another party if he didn't sign. <laughs> That's one way to get signed. I, but it was funny because he signed us and Green on Red. But he didn't tell me this, but but he did say to somebody like, you know, I'm signing Green on Red and Los Lobos. I'm going to announce it today. But he goes, you know, Los Lobos, they're cool. But, you know, Green on Red, they're going to make me. Uh, that's my retirement plan. They're going to make me a millionaire. <laughs> so, <laughs> little did he know. Yeah, little, little did he know. And that was, of course, the time of How Will the Will Survive, right? So was that the first album you made? This would have been before that. This would have been like the uh, the EP. So the, um, okay. the Time to Dance was the first, you know, so we did a six-song EP at that time. So I'm, I'm not sure whose idea it was to bring T-Bone into the picture, but T-Bone, it was like, I don't think they trusted me. They had no reason to trust me. I mean, I had done almost nothing to that point. 
oddly enough, T-Bone had done almost nothing to that point either. So basically they paired us together. And uh, so we did the first two records together, uh, which was cool. It was fun. That seemed to be when the signature sound we associate with Los Lobos kind of came together, didn't it? That sound was there early on. There are tapes uh, of that uh, Whiskey Go-Go show. And you could hear that, you know, all of the elements that are still in the band are still there. You know, David is one of the best guitar players in the world. The ideas were kind of there, like the early songwriting. All of it was there. It's not like we, I don't, we didn't unlock anything. We just captured it. And, and then, right. you know, as time passed, you know, then we all, everybody got better at it. And, you know, you, you mentioned La Bamba earlier. When that, that was my first connection with, with Los Lobos, as everybody. So, I mean, I, I'm a kid from a, you know, northern town in, in the UK. That's still what the band is primarily known for, which is sort of what, what fascinates me a little bit because that must be one of the most misunderstood bands in the world from that perspective. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not a, it's it's certainly not unpleasant. <laughs> you know, it's like we had a we had a huge number one record and it was awesome. Yeah, yeah exactly. It was a Billboard number. I think it was number one in like twelve countries or something because it was number one in the UK. It was number one all over the place. It was. Amazing. Now, I'm just going to point out that on paper, if you looked at the at the concept of a movie about a guy, a, you know, tragically, a singer, songwriter, died tragically before he turned, what, 19 or 18. He wrote all of 16 songs his entire life. A movie directed by a first-time director that, that had actors that no one had ever heard of. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not exactly a recipe for, you know, like you don't go into that. Go, okay, this is a recipe for, for worldwide fame. It was still like, yeah, you know, it was a total boat from the blue, wasn't it? Yeah. But we were working on it. It was just like, yeah, this is fun. But, you know, we were, we were simultaneously working on the follow up to the, well, the wolves survive. And that, you know, like that was where all our hopes were. You know, we thought, oh, this is going to be, this record is going to really bust us wide open. We, you know, like, I mean, not that we didn't give Bamba our full attention. I mean, we, 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 we did because it was, it was frankly, a lot of it was hard work just to trying to capture, you know, David at that point was what, almost 30. And to try and get him to sound like a 16 year old kid was not, <laughs> not easy. You know, he had to do some serious acting really while it was all happening. We, we were in utter and complete disbelief. You know, we, we did the best job we could, but it wasn't like, you know, we put all this energy investment in this other record that we were making and, you know, this other thing kind of blew up. Yeah, so you didn't expect it on so many levels. No, it was completely, totally, 100% out of the whatever that it was as successful as it was and continued to be. And, you know, just one of those magical moments, I guess. You know, we we found a gold mine in the backyard. But as you say, your reaction to it was interesting because probably of all of the interviews I've done for The Art of Longevity, may, maybe bar one, so may, maybe Laura Veers, your, your Portland neighbor, is is an exception. Yeah, I know Laura well. She's great. She hasn't had a a big song, but everybody else I've spoken to has had like one or two or three big songs. But you're the extreme version of that in a way, because that was the only Los Lobos hit. Yeah, but everyone who's sort of then experienced what you do next is really interesting because gradually, whether people whether artists realize it straight away, like we need to correct this, we need to do our own thing, we need to change direction. Or they realize three albums down the line when they've been trying, you know, they've been asked to repeat that trick so many times, then they burn out, then then they change. So something in your conscious or unconscious selves as a band said, let's not do this. Well, I remember the thought at the time was, you know, clearly it was not going to be a part two. When we went into talk to Lenny Warnker about, you know, whatever the next thing, whatever the next record was, we said to him, you know, well, you know, we've always wanted to do this sort of a, a high profile version of the record that the guys made before I joined the band, which was all this folkloric music. And I remember Louis saying to Lenny, like, you know, there'll never be a better time than right now while we have the world's attention to put a record like this out. And okay. in some senses, you could say, well, that was commercial suicide. But, you know, even then, like what, five years into our recording career, more or less, we still had the somehow or another had the insight or the vision to realize that, you know, we, we wanted to be at this for a long time. So, you know, clearly we had to do something that was going to basically stake out our own artistic corner. You're like, nope, we're not, 
we're not going to be the La Bamba party band, we're this. I mean, I'm not sure really how many other labels would have enthusiastically supported that idea, but um, Lenny, to his great credit, was like, yeah, man, that sounds great. Just go for it. Yeah, he must have had some golden tonsils going on to be able to get that past his boss. No, I think those guys, you know, I mean, that was, you know, the Warner Brothers of that era was, they, they, they were known for taking artistic chances. You know, they put out, you know, a Moondog record, or they they had Van Dyke Parks on the label for, you know, 20 years and you know, probably sold 15 records. Yeah. It wasn't out of character for the label to take a chance like that. And I think to their great credit, it's like, you know, what's really the worst that could happen? You know, like, there, it's not like, you know, there wasn't going to be, nor couldn't be La Bamba Part 2. So, you know, why not? I don't imagine that conversation would have gone down well, say, in like CBS or, right. you know, some of the other other behemoth labels at the time. You know, we were very, very, very lucky to have landed at Warner's in that era. I mean, when when those guys started leaving and the, the label started changing, it was it was sad because there were some, the guy like Mo Austin, Lenny, they were really, they were geniuses in their own way. Like, there was a reason why everybody wanted to be on Warner Brothers. And there was like the... They were definitely the cool kids by far, you know. So what happened when you got towards Kiko? Because I can't, I've got to stop off at Kiko, obviously. And I, I, I want to stop off there for a, for a little while because for me that, you know, 1992, wasn't it? So you arrived at a masterpiece there. So Obama happens, Pistola, we do the Pistola record, we tour, we win a Grammy, play Carnegie Hall. And then we go back to being a rock band. So the next record that we make, is the neighborhood record. So by that point, we more or less knew what we wanted to do in the recording studio. They had seen me at my worst too many times to listen to me anymore as a producer. So I'm not producing the records anymore. We kind of run out of patience with T-Bone. He's, you know, he's awesome at what he does, but he's he's a handful. You don't really need the T-Bone show around all the time. So we decided to hand the production part of the record to a guy named Larry Hirsch, who had engineered Will they survive? And by light of the moon, did not engineer Obama, but you know he's a really good guy, and he'd worked really hard on those records. And you know he had done, recorded, and mixed a lot, a lot, a lot of great records. He'd done like the Elvis Costello, uh, John Hyatt, uh, Bring the Family. Like he was, like he was really, really, really good at that, at recording and mixing. But we decided to make him a producer, and everything that he did was number well, number one. He was very high strung, extremely, extremely high strung smoked tons of weed just to calm his engine down like his engine was revving at 9000 rpm all the time and he thought this was his big shot to become you know a big time producer he had all this pressure on him like the last thing we needed was pressure and it was a very unpleasant process so like he thought because it was his big shot that we had to like learn the songs so we we wrote the songs and then we played them recorded them uh, actually, he went on the road with us for like a whole summer, like three months. We played the songs every night, which is not a great idea, playing songs that no one had ever heard before. I mean, like unreleased songs. So by the time it came time to record them, we were bored as fuck of these songs. Like we, It was like <laughs> we had rung them out. We had no desire to hear them anymore, much less record them, and then start the whole cycle again. And Larry was, you know, he was like every song had to be, you know, in his ears, Perfect. So it was just like this really unpleasant experience. And then we hit the so then we make the record and we hit the road and we still sort of have like some of the detritus of La Bamba. During those last bits of La Bamba, we, you know, we brought our own lighting guy and we had like, you know, two buses and we were sort of living on the, the low end of the of the high rent district. So we hit the road and thinking that we're a little bit bigger deal than we were, and we ended up not having a good time spending a ton of money coming home broke which he had never done you know we'd spent all our money on production and not really and none of it was needed we get home from that tour we're broke we spent all this time making the record recording it not having a good time playing the songs you know we found some way to play them so here we are kind of high and dry like what the hell was that all about and we kind of realized a few things which were you know Number one, we can't really trust a lot of the people around us. I'm not going to indict anybody, but you know, we, we were very poorly advised for a while, like as far as what we we're supposed to do. So we kind of realized at that point that we were only going to basically listen to our own counsel. And it was time to make another record. And we figured, well, you know what? We are, you know, not that we had ever really taken anybody's advice, but we were like, we were going to die with our boots on. We were just going to make a record. 
that we felt passionate about and we were going to do all this crazy shit and if anybody didn't like it they could go screw themselves or they could drop us you know like we just had this attitude like fuck you fuck everybody fuck you know fuck the music business so i had done some work at this studio in downtown la and this was what 1990 i guess 91 when net right now downtown la is like the hippest part of town but back then it was kind of a shithole and the studio was on fifth street which is the nickel of men you know song like there's songs about you know when you land on the nickel when you land on fifth street you basically hit bottom it was like homeless families living in boxes I and mean, it was just like this tragic right where the studio was was right in the middle of this really heartrending tableau of you know loss and you know a lot of mental illness you know just like people like just screaming all day and so you know poor little rock stars we we you know we go to this but it was a really cool studio and the engineer's name is paul dugray still working still brilliant uh it was a great sounding room it was super cheap it was like like 120 bucks a day something crazy like that with paul with the engineer and he really knew his stuff he really knew his gear so we would we would kind of walk through this true life heartbreak every day to get into the studio and kind of like okay we're let's you know we're so what you know we're not here like we're we're okay <laughs> you know we're still on the label still making records we're you know we're this is it's gonna work out so we'd cut the demos for what was going to be kiko thinking that well the label's probably going to hate it they're probably going to drop us but we don't give a fuck <laughs> and uh, again to their great credit you know lenny heard the demos like man this stuff is great you know i love it it's awesome he said well we thought about a producer we're like oh we're not you know we knew it was going to be larry or, or t-bone and he recommended mitchell Froome, who had worked on the bomb he actually produced the, the hit and we had kind of lost track you know like he was just not in our immediate family but you know we got along great on la bamba um he also produced um one song on the neighborhood that was literally the first song of kiko called be still that was if you go if you listen to that song you'll hear what then kiko became because okay. it's it's okay. this idea of combining latin rhythms with more or less a pop song so we were like yeah let's let's give it a try and you know so he heard these demos and again to his great credit he was like i love this let's just use these 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 are this is fine let's just we're gonna make this the record that was like okay we like this guy you know he's he's cool and then you know with mitchell came chad blake who is you know arguably one of the most brilliant recording engineers in the world so we were all sort of in this fuck the world motif <laughs> while we were making that record we're just like we're not going to compromise anything we're just going to follow every idea till it's not viable and it was just like the the opposite of the neighborhood where we spent months like grinding these songs out we were like we kind of wanted this the kiko to be about the, the idea of not knowing about uncertainty and and i remember like a lot of times like you know we didn't we didn't rehearse the songs at all we just kind of like you know david would play the chords and we sort of follow them and chad would make it sound like it was a masterpiece <laughs> Keith here, thanks for listening to The Art of Longevity. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Please tell your friends, listen back to the other episodes, and don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Back to the conversation. Well, it's going to say, I mean, it's, I, I, I guess a lot of really great records have come from that kind of adversity that you've described but it, it it maybe half explains it the the other half is like where did those ideas just come from because a, it's a it's a it's a genius record thank you but for people who don't know so I, I mean maybe it's mainly los lobos fans that tune in but for those who don't don't know the record it is a masterpiece and i i was reading actually in paul zolo's songwriters on songwriting there's an interview there with david and Louis, it's re really interesting to go back to the to Kiko, but he describes it as as a circuscape of the of the colorfully dreamlike, which is a kind of perfect description of what it is. It, yeah, where did the actual musical inspiration come from? I think it was one. There was a box set where we released those original demos. I think there was like a Kiko reissue. So a lot of those ideas were there in some form on the demos, like the before we met. Mitchell and Chad. And we already had this notion, like the idea was to like kind of marry these traditional rhythms with, you know, pop songs effectively. And that time it wasn't a thing yet, but it was like, 
the combination of lo-fi and hi-fi, like having some pristine sounds and then having these really filthy, intentionally fucked up sounds as well. That combination was the more or less the recipe. And then when we met Chad, like that was kind of, he was already there. Like he was, that was way, 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 way further along the, the path of that concept than, you know, we had even scratched. So those two things, along with Mitchell's genius, I mean, Mitchell really, you know, he really is a genius. He has the most amazing keyboard collection in the world. Now, all sampled, interestingly enough. Right. Back then, it was just like this. He had a room at the Sound Factory, the studio that we recorded Kiko at, that was just literally floor to ceiling of all these bizarre noisemakers, effectively. And uh, we were, that's where we were. We would just, every day was like an adventure to see what kind of unusual combination of sounds could we come up with today. It was just like we were all in, and it was everybody. Pete Thomas, who played drums on it, was like, we just wanted to turn everything inside out. We didn't want anything to sound normal. Everything had to be, somehow or another, had to be broken or fractured or or turned upside down. And all of us, everybody was in this mindset just because it was so exciting. Like, you know, no. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, lo-fi was not a thing at that point. So it was like every day, and especially with Chad, you know, he had the ability to take, you know, even the mistakes and make them, you know, turn them into like genius moments. Yeah, I hadn't appreciated uh, what an influence he was. Uh, Mitchell Froome, I I did. In fact, that was the connection for me to come back to listen to Los Lobos because I came across David Hidalgo's playing on the two Suzanne Vega albums that Mitchell Froome produced, 99 Fahrenheit and Nine Objects of Desire. Of course, he was married to Suzanne Vega as well. And then I came back across, I was like, well, who... Who's playing the guitar on this? And then I checked out, you know, Los Lobos records. With, oh, okay, this is the this is what happened to the Labamba band. <laughs> you know, just yeah, yeah. okay, very very different. And of course, you know, you mentioned earlier David's guitar playing. I mean, is just phenomenal. He's a beautiful singer, but he, he's he must be one of the best rock guitar players on the planet. He has to be in the conversation, easily top five. You know, I think everybody it was just you know like everybody deserves credit. Every single Everybody in the band, Mitchell, Chad, Pete, everybody had this like brave explorer mindset. Like we are going to go into the unknown. We are going to sail into the, into the mist here and see what happens. And you no, know, but there was no breaks. It was like nobody at ever, any moment said, oh, that's pretty weird. You know, what, what do you, you know, you sure about that? Like, because, and a lot, a lot of it was because we had this we were so angry at the beginning of it. We're just like, yeah, fuck yeah, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Fuck all these people that told us we needed to spend all this money and do all this crazy shit. And I mean, we had no actual reason for it other than coming home broke, but like, we just sort of said this, like, fuck everybody. We're just going to take these crazy, you know, we're going to go wherever this goes. And it was just everything, I guess, aligned. Everybody, you know, label, engineer, producer, band, drummer, everybody was sort of, all in 100% into this idea of, of sailing into the darkness, you know, and just seeing what, out, what was out there. So it just, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful and happy to have been part of it. And, you know, the way Chad works is like, he's kind of mixing while you're recording. So it wasn't, you know, he was effectively, the songs were all being mixed as we went along. So there was not a point where it was like, okay, we're done tracking and now we're going to mix and now everything's going to like get blown up and sound real big. It was like, all the sounds were there from the beginning from the, like literally like the first moment of the song. So there was a day where we all showed up and listened to the record in sequence. And I, it was, <laughs> I remember everybody like it was done and we're all just kind of like looking at each other. Like, did that really just happen? Like, how, yeah, <laughs> how did that come together? Yeah. Like it wasn't like, it wasn't. And we were all just like stunned. Like, like we had been like dosed or something like that. We all just kind of like stumbled out in the, into the bright LA sun. Like, Wow, what the hell was that all about? The inspiration from Kiko carried on, didn't it? So you worked with with Mitchell Froome, um, Greg as well, maybe, for the next two records, on to Colossal Head. Yeah, two more records, which is actually my... I mean, I love Kiko, don't get me wrong, but Colossal Head is that might be one of my favorites, if not my, my favorite. You know, the amazing thing for me about Colossal Head is... It's interesting, actually, because the last guest on the show was a guy called Fink. Yeah, I love Fink. I'm a, I'm a huge Fink fan. Yeah, and you know, they're the only 
probably Fink and Los Lobos, the only bands when I ever listened to the blues, I don't really, really associate very much with with the blues, but somehow you render the blues on Colossal Head in such a way, it's like it's completely different. That's very interesting. So this is, so I'll tell you the story on that one. So Duke Kiko, it receives plaudits and, you know, it's well-received. And it's time to do uh, another record. At that point, Mitchell and Chad had become very popular. So we sort of had, we're locked into this window to record. And just prior to that, we had been working with Robert Rodriguez, the movie director, on the movie that would become Desperado. And when we started the project, he was still a one-man shop. But, you know, he was this very precocious kid who basically taught himself how to make movies. And one of the things that Robert really liked was he would listen to music while he was filming. So he was actually his own cameraman in the early, like the early stages of Desperado. He was everybody. He was, you know, directing writer, director, editor, and cameraman for this movie that he was working on. Most movies, let's say they're an hour and a half long. If you actually had a stopwatch and you timed how much music you hear in the course of a movie, 40 minutes of a 90 minute movie is a lot of music. 45 is a lot, a lot of music. Robert wanted 120 minutes of music for a 90-minute movie, literally. He just wanted music nonstop, whether or not he would actually use it in the film. But if, like, his movies are have, like, twice as much music as anybody else's. So he was, like, this constant, like, you know, I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. Like, in a nice way, not an unpleasant way, but he was just literally sucking us dry. Like, any idea, he like, you know, just, I need a thing for this, I need a thing for this, and, you know, like, it would, and what was, but we'll, what ended up happening was there's like a five minute long shootout early in the movie where um, Antonio Banderas walks into a bar and kills like 50 guys. So when you also, when you score a movie, and I, I don't expect people to know all this stuff, um, the director a lot of times will put a temp track in, which is his idea of what it wants to sound like. Yeah. And then our job is to make it to work the same way musically. But we, you know, like in, in his case, you know, you, he couldn't afford Link Ray because at that point, you know, his quote for his music was very expensive. So we would spend days and days and days and days trying to get something to five minute shootout. You can't just go dun, da, 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 da. You really have to sort of play to the thing, especially when, when you see the scene, there's a lot of stuff going on. So it has to be dynamic with the action. The movie was being seen by whoever the, I forget the, whoever put the movie out, but it's like, they, they, they got so into it. They kept giving Robert more and more money. <laughs> so it'd be like, you know, I come over with the, the the music, I think it was on DAT. And you go, oh, you know, the label gave me, you know, $100,000. So I got Link Ray. So we don't need to worry about it. Like, you motherfucker. Like, <laughs> he just spent all this time trying to, you didn't tell us that you got the Link Ray song? You gotta be kidding. But anyway, my point is that we had been playing nonstop trying to like fuel Robert's thing, which, you know, again, not unpleasant. You know, we loved him. You know, the movie was, was going to be, you know, you could tell that, it was going to be cool. Unlike La Bamba, where we had no idea if it was going to be good. You know, this one, as we were watching, it was like, oh, this is going to be good. Like, people are going to dig this. You know, he's got, he's really got a unique style to his movies. So we finished with Robert on a Sunday. And then Monday, we were in the studio with Mitchell and Chad. Like, And we were kind of exhausted, I have to say. I mean, it was, you know, working with Robert is like a whirlwind. So we show up and we got nothing. Like we didn't, like there was nothing. Like we had no songs. Robert had literally taken every single idea and we're like, okay, well, hey, Mr. Hey, Chad, what do you guys got? And we're like, hey. that's the second time you turned up in the studio with those guys and and you were, you were burned out. Well, no, with, with Kiko, we had, you know, six fully developed demo. Okay. Like we had done a lot of work at that point, but this one we're like, and very famously and interesting because you made the point, Dave goes, well, what would Jimmy Reed do? Right. And we're like, ah, what would Jimmy Reed do? And that was that actually became a colossal hit. That was the song. Like, well, you'd probably do a da 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 da, and then like, wow, that's cool. Let's try that. And that turned into colossal hit. And you know, then like the door opened, and again, like, you know, it was everything you would want from a partner in Mitchell and Chad. Like, every idea was honored, and and even though they were small and, and might have been initially silly they turned into really cool songs. So we literally pulled that record out of our ass. Pete, the whole cast from Kiko came back, Pete Thomas, and everybody just jumped in with this idea, we're going to create something in the moment. 
was a little more dreamlike on Kiko just because we were doing it for the first time. But on Colossal Head, we sort of learned a lot from Kiko that to not be afraid of whatever the first thing that pops into your head is. I mean, that was the one thing. Like, whatever the first thing that enters your mind, play it. Just don't think about it. Just let it spit it out. Play it. And let's see if it, it, it works. And that was fun on Kiko. On Colossal Head, it literally became the way that that was how we did it. It was like whatever the first thing about in your head, like play it. Oh, that's cool. Let's make it a song. So you, you had this amazing run. And then in a way that's it's maybe not that unusual in the history of the record business, you, you made Colossal Head put that out and got dropped by the label. No. So we put out Colossal Head. And by that point, we're coming up on 2000. And all of those people that I highlighted before, Lenny, Mo all of our champions at the label were one by one leaving. Like the record business was exploding like exponentially, like moment by moment. And the suits were in charge and the people that were at Warner Brothers were not our buddies anymore. And certainly no one, you know, had we approached any of those guys with a La Pistola idea, they would have laughed, laughed us out of the room. Not that they were bad people, but it was just like the whole game of everything was changing. There was so much more money flying around Warner Brothers went from being this really creative, you know, this place where everybody wanted to be to just another label with same guys that got fired and hired at all the, like, it was just like this little merry-go-round of executives and A&R guys. And, you know, once you were in it, you know, you get hired and fired and it, like, there was just no, nobody that you thought was going to be there next week. Yeah. It was a kind of a thing of the nineties, wasn't it? As you say, as, as the CD era peaked, then, that legendary record executive who was the creative right. genius in, in their own right had kind of di disappeared and been replaced by corporate decision makers, effectively. The thing that might have killed it for everybody was the band Soul Asylum, because they were like, they were writing really good songs, but played at punk energy at punk speed. And they had some huge hit. So, all right, so like the label's eyes, like, oh, you know, we could turn these you know, these high energy punk bands into pop bands. So let's just do all that, you know, make the replacements do pop songs. Let's make Lobos do pop songs. And not that they ever told us to do pop songs, but it was just like all the fun had come out of the building. And whereas, you know, once upon a time, we look forward to going to visit. We just go there and like, we'd hang out or we go talk about music or talk about a record or whatever. Now is like the people that we would be interfacing with were just like, man, I don't, that guy's a knucklehead. I keep, you don't know anything like you can't, you can't have a conversation. You wouldn't want to have a beer with that guy or have him show up at a show. And, you know, like you couldn't talk about like Roland Kirk records or Captain Beefheart with a, you know, this idiot, like that, <laughs> that guy doesn't know fucking thing about music. There was nobody left at that label that we wanted to ever be around. And it was tragic because like all their guys on the road, which we had become really, really close to, we loved all those guys, but everybody in the building building was just an asshole basically so we were we said you know let us out we're done you know that's it and then we went on to uh, what to hollywood well to mammoth with rob seidenberg who was a great guy and and you know we were still with mitchell and chad and rob got bought by disney who wanted to acquire you know they disney wanted a record label in the worst way because again there was so much money being made all over the place you know disney was never averse to making money um quickly they bought Mammoth, and we were starting to hear the stuff that we didn't like. Like, hey, we need a single. Hey, we need you know one more song. Hey, we need you know like all the ship that we that Lenny and and Mo and everybody at Warner's would never ever think to say to us. That was the stuff that we were hearing, not from Rob, but from the Disney dudes. And then Rob got fired from his own label right as this time was coming out. So that was tragic for us because it, it kind of killed that record and killed our enthusiasm for being on that label. It's another great record, actually. I just, uh, I, it's one I just checked out in, in preparation for this conversation because I'd, I'd missed it. Uh, you know, there's, there's, you've made a lot of records uh, and went back to it. It's, it's a really great, great album, that one. Yeah, I went back and listened to it not too long ago. It, it it's felt like we had, like, a lot of the stuff, you know, we had two, three records with Mitchell and Chad. It wasn't like they ran out of ideas or we ran out of ideas, but it was sort of like we felt like we had kind of done the stuff. And by that point, the whole idea of lo-fi, whatever you want to call it, had really, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of people making pretty crappy records with the same sort of idea in mind. So it wasn't like we were, you know, doing anything that wasn't already happening yeah. in the culture. Yeah, 
Yeah. But yeah, I think the songs stand up. Certainly, you know, obviously Mitchell and Chad, the production is, is great. But we were kind of coming to the end of that run, I think. It, not just because of anything. It was just like, you know, the label, them, the world. You know, we were sort of entering a place where we kind of felt like we knew enough about what we wanted that we could probably do it ourselves. I mean, singles aside, because La Bamba, as we talked about, was really the only big hit anyway. So you've always had this kind of odd relationship with commercial success as for the kind of band that Los Lobos is. Again, that, back to that interview at, in the Paul Zollo book, uh, Louis said, you know, I wish we sold more records. I mean, that was 20 years ago. So a few things, you know, might have come and gone since. But does how much does it matter to you? Very, very little, really. I mean, I don't... To have had the career that we've had, to be able to, you know, basically have never really had the answer to anybody other than ourselves. You know, we're still able to tour on a relatively manageable level and pay our mortgages and stuff. That's all I ever wanted. I mean, I'm I'm completely gratified by the career that we've had. There's nothing that would have been great, but I think the main point is longevity and being able to do it for as long as we've been doing it. And I think for instance, had that wish come true and we had a hit with something of our own, like that always kind of tends to change the filter and, and the focus a little bit. So you're always like, well, what do we do to get that hit? Like, you know, you always kind of put yourself in this, in this place of like, you know, looking backward instead of for us, because we never really had to live up to or beat anything. You know, the, the Bamba was so singular. It was just a singularity that we've never felt this obligation to do anything other than to move forward and to make new music and, and try and create something of, of lasting value and sales, especially now when there's no such thing as sales anymore. So yeah, every, everybody else has caught up with you now because nobody sells anything. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> so, sells anything. You, so, you're ahead of your time in so many ways, but yeah, it's interesting because you managed to avoid that attachment with, with the hit. And actually for most bands of, of the longevity that I've been talking to, to some extent, they've had to uh, let recover from it. I have worked with bands, number of bands who have had hits, and there is always this n noise in the background of like, you know, are we, are we pushing the same buttons? Are we, you know, do we, are, am I wearing the same shirt? There's so much magic that goes into having a hit, and it's so unexplainable, and so there is no formula to having a hit record. It happens, and it's luck. It's, I would say it's probably 60% luck, 30% talent, and 10% timing. Some some combination of those three. Yeah. <laughs> maybe might, the, the scale might be sliding, maybe it's a little more talent than, than luck. But a lot of it is just, you know, La Bamba being a perfect example. Like there was a La Bamba sized hole in the culture when we showed up. And a lot of times it's just a matter of, you know, whatever the hit is, there was a smells like teen spirit sized hole in the culture when Nirvana showed up. And you hope to time, <laughs> you hope to be there when, yeah. When the time is right, I mean, you know, you and I both, there's a million records that should have been huge that weren't for whatever reason. And it's it, a lot of it was luck and timing. But, you know, for us, I would say it's just to have had a 50 year career. That's insane. Yeah. Out of out of every conversation so far on this show, you, you trump everybody, I think, with with 45 years. I have to tell you that, you know, in just in listening to the catalogs, it's really interesting just preparing for these conversations just intense listening to Los Lobos. It's, it's been really interesting because it, it is so textured and, as you say, so dense, the, the music, and also very visual. So it's always conjuring up these, these pictures, but the, with beautiful playing. I've tried a few things, new releases that came out recently. So it kind of sounds a bit thin. <laughs> you know. So it's, to some extent, it sort of requires retraining your ears. It's been a great experience, and I think it's... it's I'm going to listen to more Los Lobos, but there doesn't seem to be too much of that type of music around these days, which has that sort of depth to it. Thank you, number one. Um, I think it's just how we are now, I guess. I mean, this is the noise that we make <laughs> when we all get together in a room and somebody pushes the red button. I mean, it's there's no secret to it. I mean, I think a lot of it, I think, is how David Hidalgo hears music, you know, like that detail and that richness is a lot of it is how he hears and how he layers his parts and how he you know he crafts his tones and and stuff like that so then you know it's a lot of it's just dumbass luck you know which is this is yeah well for for anyone who hasn't discovered your music and david and what what he does then i, I hope this show helps i 
there's a small aside to finish on. Yeah. You made a few soundtracks. The Town and the City, which was 2006, which is another classic, genuine classic. So, you know, that was kind of the vision of growing up, wasn't it? As that uh, Louis Perez had, it was kind of built on his story. The cover was done by Jamie Hernandez. Were you familiar with Jamie's work beforehand? Yeah, I was well aware of Jamie and like the whole idea, like it just sort of everything lined up. It was kind of perfect, really. So somewhere in my in my head is a fantasy that Netflix or someone, because it's the age of TV shows, is going to pick up the rights to Love and Rockets. The longest running genius soap opera ever written by anyone is the comic book Love and Rockets by Jamie Hernandez. And Los Lobos does the soundtrack. I mean, can you imagine that? Oh, that'd be, yeah, I, I, let's do it. <laughs> I, 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 I can make that happen. Yeah, I'd like to make it. I'd like to make it something like that for the 50th anniversary. I would be happy to put that pitch together and say, what do you think? Could this work? Because, yeah, it's all pretty doable these days. To be perfectly honest, like making records these days, I won't say we're out of ideas, but it, it, it has to have a reason to exist. I, just another Los Lobos record. Like, who cares? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, let's make it about, let's do that. Let's take it, the soundtrack to the Love and Rockets, uh, you know, like a, a live a Netflix uh, Love and Rockets thing. You know, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Couldn't agree more. I think one of the, again, one of the sort of threads running through this show has been, you know, bands that have made, they're on their fifth or 10th or 15th record that they want to build it around a concept. And I think it's a, it's, it's a really, first of all, it's a really smart thing to do, but also it's just, what I think gives you the, the creative energy. I'll tell you for us, it's very helpful to have a boundary at this point in our career, you know, like whatever I think is like what 17th, 18th. I, I don't, I can't even count the records anymore. I have no idea. 17th. I think studio record was. Okay. So what haven't we done? Like in one way or another, we've kind of done everything. So at this point, it's like, it has to be about something. It has to either be a, a concept or an idea or something to give us a reason to like, okay, well, let's, let's examine this thing that we're like, for, in this case, it was, you know, the idea of Los Angeles, like, wh- wh- how do you represent Los Angeles on a record? Like, you know, it really, really helps to focus the energy and to come at it from different angles. If it's just a bunch of, you know, 10, 12 songs, it's like, you know, done that 17 times already. Let's, let's make it, <laughs> let's, let's try something else. Cause it's, it's not easy. And it, you know, it's, it's fucking, you know, I, again, I make music for a living. My worst day is better than 99% of the world's, you know, best day. Right. You know? So I'm right. not, I'm, yeah. I never lose sight of the fact that I'm blessed in that regard, but you know, we want to have fun doing this. And we want to like, there's this great quote from uh, cowboy Jack Clement, who was a country producer of the fifties. He goes, we're in the fun business. If you ain't having fun, you ain't doing it right. And it's like, yeah, we're in the fun business. So it, it, it is, it's incumbent on us. Like, I think the records should be about something and there should be some measure of joy in it somehow or other. Doesn't have to be joy necessarily. Like misery also works great. Actually, misery is <laughs> yeah, better. Yeah, yeah, M- Misery and heartbreak. Let's not forget about that. In the creation aspect of it, there has to be some you know, to get us up and, you know, drive to the studio, there there has to be some part of it that it, you, you look forward to. So, you know, we'll see. But I, I love that idea. Well, get me involved. Uh, I want to be in on that pitch. You're, you're executive producer. There's your <laughs> idea. Uh, yeah, look forward to whatever you do next, and particularly with the, the 50th coming up. Yeah, we don't know. That's going to be a, that's a, I don't know how you even, you know, it's hard to even get your head around 50, but come up with something, I guess. Yeah, look, I there's, some really, there's some good ideas. You know, we mentioned Fink. He did something really, really cool, which is just going back. I mean, they've been around for 15 years. Um, they just picked out the songs that meant something to them and the fans, and they looked at some numbers as well, so they used the data a little bit in a, in a smart way and just reinterpreted the songs differently. And the whole idea was that, you know, you put a song down as a finite thing, and that's false. Uh, ultimately, as the creator, that that's a fake thing because the song lives and breathes beyond that. And to a large extent, you get better at playing it. And and for Finn Greenall of Fink, he's like, well, I, I'm a better singer, so I sing these songs better. Mm. So they laid them down again on the new acoustic record, which is it's great. It's just a really nice way of kind of going back and, and reliving what you've done already. It would be interesting. I don't think it would work for us. There's no, I mean, we're just, you know, there's no way we would want to go back. You know, like yeah. we, we do it when we do like a, the Kiko commemoration, whatever that was 10 years ago, like, We'll do it for stuff like that, but I don't think 
you know, like again, you know, we've done it. <laughs> we we did that already. So yeah, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe we do colossal head again. I don't know. Yeah, we'll, yeah we'll you figure it out. You'll get one of those inspirations will come come to you, and 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 that'll be that. So I look forward yeah. to it. I hope it doesn't come out of the kind of adversity you've you've described with Kiko and with colossal head. But um, what yeah, whatever whatever happens next, I, I'm looking forward to it. And and thanks very much for joining me. And uh, we'll see you very soon. Thanks, man. Really enjoyed it. See you later, Steve. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye-bye.